Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. S. Matthew Sturmer, or Matt Sturmer, is a Ph.D. candidate of sociology at The Ohio State University. His academic interests include social movements, gender, networks, public health, and religion. His work has appeared in the Journal of Peace Research and in a book titled Sex and World Peace. He currently serves as the first counselor in the Young Men's Presidency of his ward. He and his partner, Janil, have four children, ages 5 through 16. He is the author of an article entitled, A Reflection on the Cultural Construction of Sexual Needs, found in the journal Square Two, found at square2.org. Welcome, Matt Sturmer. Thanks for coming on with us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So your research uh, and your writings come in a variety of different ways, but they're mainly on these very, what appear to be challenging social subjects like gender experiences, public health, religion. Uh, you either appear to be a man ignorant of the criticisms and venom that accompany those who talk about these challenging issues, or you, you're just that passionate. So which one is it? <laughs> uh, I suppose both in some ways. I, I, I hope that I'm more passionate, but I, I try to also not spend too much time with the criticism that can make anyone fairly depressed. Well, yeah, and these these are these are, I guess, potentially volatile topics, especially the topic of 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 your article that we'll get into a little bit later. But you do you do tend to have this strong sense of purpose in what you've you've written, almost a a mission to elevate the role and respect of women. Yes, and and that seems to uh, to permeate the dialogue of your work. You're also involved with uh, womenstats.org, right? With with Valerie Hudson, is that is that right? That that is that is correct. Uh, she and I have worked together for well over a decade now. We started back in two thousand and two. Okay, well, and even even the language of your article it carries kind of this same tone, and and even in your bio, you referred to your 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 wife, your spouse as as your partner, a, a co-equal title. Am I reading too much into that? Is that is there something to why you called her your partner instead of your wife or spouse? Well, um, y- yes and no. Um, it, it's a term that I use kind of in direct reference to the um, proclamation to the world, you know, that uh, husbands and wives are supposed to work together as equal partners. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, it, depending on the context, I may use uh, the, the terms interchangeably. I, I don't uh, use one just that. I don't use partner just absolutely. But in certain contexts, I feel that it communicates a more appropriate uh, um, more appropriate meaning about uh, who who we are as as individuals and how we come together in our marriage. Okay, excellent. Well, you, let's get to your article. It's entitled "A Reflection on the Cultural Construction of Sexual uh, Quote Unquote Needs," and this okay. is found in in the journal Square Two. Again, found at Square Two dot org. You've decided to tackle one of the more potentially volatile mixes of topics, and that is sex and religion. Um, yep. And certainly an issue that uh, is is not uh, a foreign challenge to those of the latter day saint faith and community let's try let's try and ease into this topic since it it can be a little strong for some. Why are you addressing sex in a religious or faith based context well um 
So I suppose something that would be important to to understand about my personal perspective and how I try to interact with the world in general is from a from a religious perspective. I'm, I'm interested in the concepts of, of Zion, uh, the the building up of a, an equal society where everybody's able to uh, fulfill their their interests and their desires, and that they're they're treated as equals within the society, and that uh, everybody's wants are taken care of. You know that that type of a utopian society is something that I I hope that you know we're all trying to strive for. That we're not trying to wait for for Christ to come or for something to happen in the future. Is it that's 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 a not now. going to happen? If we're, right. We've we've got to work on it now. That's our that's what we're called to do. And so if if that's um, if we're trying to create a a Zion type society as this utopia, then um, it, it's imperative that we break down the, the structural barriers that, that create hierarchy between individuals. So whether it's within uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of the intimate relationships at the home, or whether it's hierarchy within our community or within the world, that, that hierarchy just has to be broken down. So all of my research is looking at the structural barriers that prevent people from seeing each other and acting as equals. Okay, and then uh, and Brigham Young, you know, talked about how Zion was going to come when with when Zion is established in the home first, and then from the home spread to the community, and from the community out into the world. And so, within the family, anything that's going to create a hierarchy of um, of, of who is more important that can get their way. I'm interested in trying to deconstruct that and to help put the that that most important relationship between the husband and wife on equal footing, and that's kind of where I get into this idea of need. There's yeah. something to be if you can construct it as a need, then I have some authority, I have some claim on being able to get what I need versus what somebody may somebody else may want or. Um, So in this particular case, the the reason that the need is is kind of uh, a less than ideal way of categorizing it is simply because it requires or would demand something from someone else. Because needs in, in and of themselves are not terrible. We need water. We need food. But when we place something that demands someone else's attention or, or, or time and energies, that's where this becomes an, an issue, right? That's where the conflict comes. Right, it, it's how it gets used. So, I, I, if I need to breathe, then um, if, if, if something's preventing me from, from from fulfilling that, it seems within the uh, justified uh, realm of uh, possible actions for me to take steps in order to make sure I can uh, fulfill that need. And I think we've got to be real careful how we apply. Uh, where, where we start applying that uh, that precedent, and if you start getting into uh, how defining sex as a need, I can start using coercive power at that point and feel justified in doing it, and and feel hurt when I don't feel like my need is being met, and all of that introduces very complicated emotions and then that hierarchy and power into that relationship where it just shouldn't be. 
Yeah. Well, and, and to get it kind of into the, the core of your article, you actually open with this quote that I'd like to read really quick. Yeah, you said, quote, Recently the topic of male sexuality, responsibility, and faithfulness came up in a discussion among several LDS friends and coworkers. But if, if you were to be the proverbial fly on the wall in that discussion, where you're having this uh, conversation about male sexuality, responsibility, and faithfulness with LDS people, what would we have heard? What were some of the opinions that were injected into that conversation? The general premise was that uh, some of the men and women speaking up there, their husbands, or even some of the single women speaking about men that they knew, there, there was a general feeling among some of them that uh, the male sex drive represented a need and in a partnership, there was an implicit agreement between a husband and wife that sex would be part of uh, their their marriage on terms that were agreeable to to both of them. No, no one implied that a woman needed to do you know anything a husband had asked, but that there was an an, an implied consent, and therefore, if a husband expressed a desire to have sex, that the, the woman bore some responsibility uh, for um, for consenting uh, you know, in, in that particular instance. Um, mm. That was one of the opinions, right? There were there were others that were yeah. kind of included. What were some of the other opinions? Well, th- there were several others that uh, were similar to mine. You know that uh, uh, you know, women uh, retain the. Uh, the right to consent uh, the entire time. It's not just implied with, with marriage, and therefore she never has the right to uh, say no uh, at any point in time in the future. So I think one of the main concerns was that uh, the idea that the woman, the, the spouse, would bear some responsibility for what her husband's actions were uh, is uh, you know, contrary to you know, the gospel principles of individual responsibility and accountability. Okay. And so th- those are some of the, the themes that I, I, I pulled into uh, the article and as I expressed my opinion with, uh, with this group and then turned it into an article format. Well, I, it made me wonder as I was going through this article, is there a doctrine on the subject of marital intimacy? Is there a teaching uh, that outlines the responsibility, if we're going to use that word, uh, the responsibility of sex in marriage? Your, your article actually asserts the following quote, quote, the central aim of the doctrine of the restored gospel is unity. Anything that divides us creates hierarchy, as you said before, especially between spouses. And so any disunity essentially must be renounced for the evil that it is. End quote. So when you're talking about a doctrine of marital intimacy, it's not a straightforward doctrine on this. It's more you're kind of applying the doctrine of unity. Is that a fair characterization? So yes and no. Um, it, it certainly derives from that, but there have been a number of quotes uh, uh, from various individuals, like Howard W. Hunter, that uh, you certainly do get into uh, the intimacy within marriage and um, uh, coercion, uh, especially as it uh, gets into abuse. Uh, Elder Scott has talked about abuse on several different occasions now. 
and not just uh, physical abuse, but emotional and psychological, and that those actions are not uh, justified and, and are, are evil. I think we, we sometimes can easily get focused on the extremes. Like nobody is going to to say, oh yeah, it was totally reasonable for that guy to beat his wife because she didn't want to have sex. You know, no one justifies that. Right. But the the premise of of why we are, would be appalled at that type of action is that it's a, a coercion. You know, if if we kind of bring things back down from the extreme, like what what's the essence of the problem? Well, the, the essence of the problem is this coercion. You know, then getting back to those ideas of equality and unity, if we have any type of coercion that's taking place, that's going to put some limits and constraints on the unity that uh, that, that we can feel as a couple. And kind of getting back to the idea that you know when when people are united together in, in the spirit, that that's where Christ can be. Again, anything that starts to divide us is going to you know have some ramifications for how we're able to operate as a couple. Well, you give an example in your article of a couple who came to you for some counseling on a matter that, that is kind of an example of what you're, what you're talking about here. Could, could you actually share that example that you gave in the article? Yeah, I mean, the, there was a husband whose affections had strayed, and uh, while no um, physical act of, um, of adultery had taken place, there was, there was certainly an, an emotional uh, distancing to the, the point where he was uh, contemplating uh, divorce and um, he wasn't sure that he uh, loved his wife any longer. The spouse was, uh, as they as they talked, he had mentioned, at least in passing, I, I, I can't remember at this point if it was a demand that was placed, but as, uh, as I recall, it was, you know, he, he was wanting more more intimacy and more more sex, so, you know, something of that, that nature. I can't remember exactly uh, the details on that, but what I do remember was that she had gotten into her mind that that more sex would be better for their relationship, and that it, somehow that if she would put out more, then that would somehow repair the uh, the emotional connection that they had lost, and that kind of set them up for uh, some difficult circumstances. And and at this point, and, she she continued to want more and she she gave more and more and more and more, but it never seemed to satisfy. Is that right? Well, so uh, yes, and they they, they were um, engaging in more and more and more sex. And uh, it was, and, and it's not the, the physical satisfaction, you know, that was uh, the challenge, of course, but it was that the, the physical satisfaction did not inherently lead to the emotional connection, which is what both of them were craving from the very beginning. They, they had both thought that, you know, through the, the physical, that they would be able to attain the emotional. And it, it got to the point where uh, you know the woman felt like she was prostituting herself. You know, she was she was selling something, of you know she was, in a sense was selling the sex, trying to get something that she wanted, but the, the that currency of exchange uh, just it, it cheapened everything. 
yeah. because it was not being done from the, the, the deep emotional uh, point of the desired connection. So the, the, the emotional connection being desired first, that, that emotional, it was a kind of psychological and even spiritual connection that then manifest themselves through physical acts. They were trying to go in the reverse. From this experience, you, you give three different points that you feel is critical in showcasing, not necessarily just how these people did it wrong, but that you feel is critical to having a healthy relationship and one that actually falls in line with doctrinal concepts. And, and I know that that seems a little weird perhaps to a couple listeners, this idea that we're, that there's a, a spiritual aspect to this, but let, let's get into those three points and then let's kind of delve a little bit more into the doctrinal and spiritual aspects of this rather than maybe okay. just social constructs. So, uh, the the three that you had were first that sex is not intimacy. So maybe you can explain why those two are not the same. When it seems that sometimes it's taught that way, I think that's the the easier way to teach it. In some sense, um, we kind of simplify and maybe dumb things down a little bit for uh, for younger audiences, and rather than you know going kind of delving into the more complex nature of sex and intimacy. But uh, the, the example that I uh, use, just kind of on the extreme, you know, prostitutes and johns are engaged in sex, but it's that's not, not intimate. intimacy, right? And very few people would look at that and say, you know, in the exchange of, of money, you know, for a sexual service, that uh, intimacy, as we would commonly you know, describe in a marital relationship, in a good marital relationship, that, uh, that those are equal acts. Now, second, you say even in marriage, sex does not necessarily lead to unity. Let's go with that. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so again, this is the the idea that uh, you know, while the two may be related, sex and intimacy may be related. These are two you know distinct acts as well. You know, the, the acts of intimacy and acts of sex can lead to each other, but uh, they're not inherently you know, uh, connected. One doesn't have to follow the other. And, and it goes both ways. You know, that, that sex does not have to uh, lead to intimacy, and indeed sometimes it, it won't, coming back to the, the prostitute example. And intimacy does not inherently mean that sex will follow. You know, we have numerous examples, uh, especially if you go back in time uh, and, and look at the writing style of, uh, of friends uh, back in the late 17 or 1800s, you know, letter writing was, was uh, much more common yeah. uh, than it is now. But if you look at some of the letters that, that are written, they're extremely intimate. You know, there's this outpouring of emotion and uh, sharing of feelings and concerns, you know, and uh, among friends, uh, both uh, of different sexes and same sex, and that intimacy uh, that's expressed there very often uh, never led to any type of sexual relationship. These were just people who were friends who were intimately connected, but not physically so. You know, it's one of the, the interesting things that I've been able to observe in uh, my brief time here on Earth. But uh, I have found situations where perhaps one person may feel that sex is unifying 
the couple while the other is not. And perhaps it is this way or in balance because there isn't a communication happening. Do you feel that it is possible that one person can feel unified through sex while the other doesn't? Oh, for sure. Or is that a lie? No, no, I mean... I, I don't know that I'd want to make a dichotomy out of this, you know, that it had to be, has to be one way or another. Okay. I, I think that um, the reason we engage in, in certain actions, you know, may be different for any particular couple at any particular time. You know, it's very possible for, uh, say, for a, well, let's flip it on, on its head, you know, so say that the, the woman wants to have sex and uh, the, the husband is tired you know, from the, the day of work and stressed out and, and uh, is not particularly interested. Um, you know, both can engage in a sex act just for the sake of a uh, stress release. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and maybe even that both say, okay, we're, we're going to, to do this, and, and they, they both enjoy it, and there's, there's not any coercion involved. But it's not building intimacy per se in that instance it's just we're doing this because it has that sex has an actual function of relieving stress and and we both recognize that and we engage in that um and so it serves a purpose and and there's no coercion involved but not necessarily doesn't necessarily lead to intimacy and in another instance uh you could have one individual who uh recognizes so in this instance with the, the husband who he recognizes that you know, his, his spouse is wanting to, to have sex and, and desires to engage. Rather than just engaging, okay, I know that she wants to do this, and I'm willing to do this, and that would be, you know, de-stress for me as well. It would be fun. But also, I understand that this is something that my spouse wants to do, and I want her to feel, feel fulfilled, and I want her to feel loved and, and that this is something, you know, this physical act is something that she's desiring right now. And so I can engage the act uh, of sex, not just from a stress relief standpoint, but I can engage it from that intimacy standpoint and I can grow closer to my spouse uh, and how I interact with it as well. Whereas my, my, uh, you know, Jimmy in that instance, maybe she was just Stressed and, and uh, or just wanting to have fun, and uh, you know, wasn't reciprocating on that intimacy side. You know, she wasn't engaging from, from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that it was any any less fun or any less enjoyable, or, or that I was somehow uh, more noble in how I was going about doing it. it. It's just simply we're engaging at different levels at different times. Right. And so again, I I, I don't think that they they that it's wrong or bad that one may be feeling a sense of intimacy where the other one doesn't, uh, my, my concern is that the level of coercion, uh, not, not whether both are feeling that it's doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. The stars don't always have to align, is what you're saying. Right. Yeah, again, as long as, long as there, there isn't a coercion that's being put into place, then how, people, how the couple interacts with the sex and the benefit they get from it that may be different on any given day. Okay. Well, let's go to your third. A third is uh, a focus on who needed what or who did what and who did not get what they felt that they needed from their spouse sexually. Uh, This idea being that, again, the focus on making a need is where this balance goes the other way. So with this all being kind of laid out, 
And when one ventures into calling sex a something that has a connection to spiritual or sacred things, uh, and, and to a point, covenants, right? I mean, we're talking about the marriage covenant. That can be sometimes a bit off-putting, uh, maybe even a mischaracterization to some. So how would you make the argument then that this is an issue that even needs to be addressed doctrinally outside of perhaps this this unified Zion thing? Is there anything else that makes this something relating to a spiritual context? Sure. So I'll, I'll preface it by saying that you know, any any couple that let's say that they they do have this construction of need, you know, that I as a husband need to have sex, which which again physiologically speaking uh, and, and emotionally speaking, there's uh, a significant amount of research that actually shows that that women have just as strong of sex drives as, as men have, and so it, even just from a science standpoint, the construction of men having a need that somehow trumps women. I just it's just not even backed up from a biology standpoint. But but let's say that your couples adopt that because it is a common perception um, that 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 men have a stronger need than women uh, for sex. So let's say that that's adopted within a couple, and that uh, you know and, and that particular couple they they have this understanding uh, that uh, if uh, the husband desires sex, that the spouse is willing to engage. And she doesn't feel pressured or coerced. She feels like that's part of what what she can and is willing to do. They they may go their entire marital life not feeling any discord about how how they socially constructed their sexual relationship. And I don't want to speak ill of that. And that again, somebody may go their whole life and never have a concern with this. The point where I think it's uh, damaging. And, and why we need to think about how we are teaching it to you know, the, the rising generation is that when we start getting into relationships that aren't perfect and you know, end in stress or end in divorce or you know, end in some type of isolation, that frequently, in, in my experience, what I have seen in, in these opportunities that I've had to uh, counsel with couples is that the the construction of the sexual need ends up damaging uh, the the spiritual progress that they're able to make either as an individual who's trying to repent because of what actions they have not committed, you know, or a uh, one of the spouses trying to recover uh, from the emotional and physical uh, abuse that. Uh, they had subjected themselves to feeling that they were obligated to do that, but never feeling, never, never really having felt comfortable with it. Gotcha. So when we get into these really kind of difficult circumstances, that's when the the air of how we are co- currently constructing it really comes to the forefront. Yeah. So just as, a, as an example, let's say that if you have a, a husband going back to the other direction uh, now. Let's say that the husband uh, you know, felt that they had this uh, sexual need, and they started to feel like that need is not being met with my wife, because she's not willing to engage in, in sex as frequently or whatever. Um, you know, frequently, what's also missing is the intimacy. And then at work or some other environment, uh, 
know, where, where they go to the gym and work out, there's somebody who begins to feel that kind of emotional, intimate connection. And that can then spill over into uh, acts of, uh, of adultery. Well, I, I've seen on a, a number of instances where the husband felt they felt they were not fully responsible for their actions because their spouse had done or had not done something they felt like they should have. They didn't feel that need. Right, they didn't fulfill that need. So I'm not 100% responsible. And then they want some leniency when it then comes to uh, the repentance process. uh, I I shouldn't have to take full responsibility for for this uh, because, you know, Somebody else was partially responsible. It's kind of like accident. You know, you were seventy percent responsible for the accident, and the other one was thirty percent responsible. And so, I, I used in, in the article from Alma Forty Two, uh, where you have uh, Alma the Younger talking to his son Corianton, and you know that uh, to, to not deny the justice of God and not to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sin. And so, uh, and Al was very clear, you know, like, you can use whatever excuse you want, you know, that, uh, about this other woman, uh, that he had run after, but this was his responsibility, 100%. And in order for him to repent and progress, he has to be able to own that responsibility and then turn 100% then over to the Savior for, uh, for, for the atonement to be put into his life. So we, we damn the spiritual progress of individuals in these difficult circumstances when they feel that they are not 100% responsible for what's going on. Yeah. With, with the actions that they took. You actually tie this idea back to not just Delma 42, but in some respects back to the oath and covenant of the priesthood. Yeah. How, how, did you, how do you make that connection? Well, so from a... Um, from, from a covenant standpoint, you have, um, and, and I, I think the, the the part that I reference more is in uh, section 121, so not really the 84 Oath and Covenant part, but it's responsibilities that are part of uh, the priesthood, that the, the types of whatever priesthood power and authority there is that cannot be handled upon any form of unrighteousness. And if you tried to to seek any sort of uh, power and authority, dominion, uh, you know that you have you have no more you have no more priesthood, you have no more authority. It's all gone at that point. Uh, the, the priesthood covenants that, that men make uh, that there is a lesson that we can learn in, in trying to uh, become more Christ-like and, and follow that example. You know, of um, just re- removing all acts of coercion uh, in the relationships that we establish. Well, uh, I know that this has been kind of a heavy, deep subject and perhaps one that might uh, be slightly uncomfortable for some, but I really appreciate you putting out your article, again entitled, A Reflection on the Cultural Construction of Sexual Needs, again found in Square 2, that journal at square2.org. Thank you very much, Matt Sturmer, for coming on and sharing with us your, your thoughts and perspectives. Yeah, very glad to do it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galletti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. 
The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.